With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Just be sitting up there jacked. I'm there for the pack out. You just got to pack me in. Committed to the bow early on, like I love getting close and putting up. You cover a range of stuff on here too, right? Like we call this the uh, the THP World Headquarters. You know, my grandpa Roy Weatherby. I came into like that golden little pocket where there was like four or five different bowls. Just you're Canadian. We're doing yeah, a I... Canadian podcast. My name's Douglas Stoke. I'm Robbie Denning. Roy Candy. Right on. So how you doing, man? Doing good. How you doing? Good, good. Remind me, where are you? Uh, where do you live? So, live in North Carolina, uh, just west of Charlotte. Right. Gotcha. Um, have you ever been up here to Canada? Uh, it was a very long time ago. Went on a school trip to Quebec, but oh, oh, it's been a very know. long time. I don't know if we out west even consider Quebec part of Canada. Well, hey, you asked <laughs> if I went to Canada. You know, yeah, I was yeah, out yeah. there where you're at. Yeah, figure that out on your guys' end for sure. Yeah. So right on, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So I got a question for you. How did you get into NASCAR? That that's the number one question. I get yeah, asked well, that's, you know, weekend. like, I absolutely love NASCAR. Like, one of my goals is to go watch, an, uh, like, a live NASCAR event. Like, they're, yeah. just, they're just badass. Well, it's a lot of fun. So um, I've been doing it now this past season. So 2023 was my 14th season doing it um, as a job. So this year coming up will be my 15th. And you just kind of get into it like you get into a lot of other things. Like I grew up um, being a fan of NASCAR, uh, helping friends out at local short tracks. And then it just one thing turned into another. And it just kind of it's where my life, I think, always was headed. School was never really my thing. I can't sit down. I can't read books. I mean, I can read it. It's just not like I just, I don't enjoy it. Right. I like working with my hands. I like creating things and exploring things like mechanically. So NASCAR was just like, it was an easy venture for me to get into. Um, right. Originally from Connecticut and where everything in, if you want to be a NASCAR, the central hub for NASCAR is here, Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina. So I, once I turned 21, packed up all my stuff, dropped out of college my dad helped me move down here and the rest has been history. Yeah, that's sweet. And so did you always have like a passion for, for cars and, and fixing them and stuff like that? Yeah. So I think it all stemmed from my dad and my grandmother. We would go to the, being from Connecticut, we have a pretty good short track, like racing program in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of tracks probably within 45 minutes to an hour from where I grew up. There was three of them. There was Thompson Stafford and the Waterford speed bowl. And the Waterford Speed Bowl is probably where I spent most of my teen years, um, whether I was either at the racetrack watching or I was helping a friend work on a race car. So back when I was like really young, my, my dad and his mom would always like to go to the racetrack. So I'd always get to go with them. So, I mean, just growing up, grew up watching racing 
in person, watching it on TV, just completely enamored with everything about it. Absolutely loved it and always wanted to do it, you know, work in racing. Thought that would be the coolest thing ever. And it just kind of just the way my life unfolded, one thing led to another. And I needed to make a decision. I either going to pay attention in school and not go to the racetrack as much, or I'm going to drop out of school and go to the racetrack all the time. And as a 21 year old, it was an easy decision for me. So I dropped out of school and went racing. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet, man. So like, I always curious how, how you get into like these, these types of things. Like, did you have to work your way up to get to where you are now? Or is it kind of like, like, how do you even get an in? Cause I imagine like yeah. the, the amount of applicants they must have like to work at NASCAR would be a lot. Like you think that's like, that's like more, a Canadian loves that stuff. I imagine there's a lot of Americans down there who must just absolutely love it. So there is, I mean, it does take a little bit of some of NASCAR is who, you know, um, but it's not as much as who, you know, it's what you're willing to do in the sport. So the sport's very demanding. It's very grinding for me. Uh, I could either mechanically I'm, I'm good turning wrenches and working on race cars. That was always an avenue that I could go down. But when I was younger, when I moved to do this full time, 21 years old, I'm young, I'm athletic. The pit crew thing was like, this looks like it's awesome. So Mm -hmm. what I guess I'll tell the audience, what my actual job is, my full nine to five is I work in NASCAR. I'm the front tire changer for the number 24 car of William Byron at Hendrick Motorsports. And changing tires for me has always been something that like I watched growing up and I was like, I want to do that. Like if I can do that, that's like, the, for me, that's the coolest job in the world. And the fact that I've gotten to do it and I'm continuing to do it is just, it's a dream come true. So getting into it, knowing not much about how to change tires, except for seeing it on TV. Luckily, there is a few resources here in North Carolina. There's the pit school in Mooresville, um, which is where I went. And what they do there is it's a very, like, it's a crash course. It's like going to a community college and taking a crash course on like how to be a machinist. They get you there. And they kind of go over all the basic, hey, this is pit road. These are the rules. This is what you're allowed to do. This is kind of the overview of how you do each one of these jobs, how you become a tire changer, how you jack a race car, how you carry tires, how you do all the things in a pit stop. You learn all the choreography of it. And then it's just kind of up to you at that point to, you know, put in the work and really hone your craft and just get good at it. So a few years of hustling. And eventually you can end up landing a job if you have the talent and you have the drive to do it. But it's a demanding schedule. We race from Valentine's Day weekend all the way up into the first weekend of November, which for the audience, I'm guessing the large majority of your audience is a hunting audience, which so NASCAR takes up, you know, 90% of the hunting season for me, especially the Western hunting stuff, the the elk rut and early archery hunts. So Mm -hmm. It's tough for me to get to go on hunts, but it's a job that I wouldn't trade for the world. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the nice thing about, well, I know you guys have seasons and the nice thing about being in the States is like, you can go, you know, you could really go state to state and hunt anywhere. Like up in Canada, it's not that easy to just go. There is some provinces where you can just, you know, like me being in BC, I can go to Saskatchewan and hunt black bears, Mm -hmm. but I can't go to Alberta and hunt deer. I have to be hunter hosted and, you know, same thing if, if somebody from Alberta wants to come to BC and hunt and there's some species in BC that you just can't hunt unless you're a resident. But um, yeah. So, I mean, luckily, you know, you do have the opportunity to hunt, you know, the later season, you still get a lot of good whitetail season in and 
Uh, I'm sure you get a lot of chat, a lot of opportunity to shoot your bow, which I know you love as well. So, yeah, uh, that that's one good thing about the NASCAR is the the hours, um, the weekly hours. I guess it's not a typical nine to five. We're gone on the weekends, but that leaves a little bit more time during the weekdays. You know, when things aren't as busy, um, you can go to the archery shop and there's not as many people there, or yeah. I can just sit there and shoot arrows at the house because I don't have, I'm maybe not working that late in the afternoon. So. That's always good. It does award me time to do it. Um, you can definitely do it. And that's what I like to tell people who, you know, they say they can't get time off work to do these things, or it's going to be a little too hard. Or I guess the thought of planning a seven or eight day, 10 day hunt is just really daunting. And it's like, Hey, I don't get that opportunity myself. Usually my hunts are planned. They're four or five, maybe six days at the max. So yeah. if you can, anything you can plan to get out, to go do it, you're, you want to do it because it's, so much fun i mean that's why we do it right yeah absolutely and there's so much resources now i mean e-scouting you know you don't necessarily have to be you don't you know it can cut down on a lot of your time as well i remember back before we had computers and everything and we go on these sheep hunts for like 10 15 days and we go into a lot of this area we knew nothing about never seen it other than maybe you know a, a, a shitty old topo map but now with like google and 3d maps and everything you can get it really get a I lay it out of the land. So like a lot of those trips that we did for goats and stuff up in Northern BC, a lot of it was just like scouting, but that was your hunting trip, right? You go on a 10, 15 day hunting trip and you're just essentially scouting for next year. But um, yeah, like you do necessarily don't have to do a seven day hunt. You can, you know, if you do a little bit of homework, when you have the opportunity, like right now, you can kind of strategically plan your hunts out, cut a little bit of, you know, time down. There's great resources out there, like Treeline Academy, all this stuff that can really help you, navigate through some of the stuff that you know you where you don't need to go and you know just so much information now where you can really cut your hunt time down and still be successful for sure you bring it up and on the uh, the flip side of this because i'm on my laptop but i have also have a pc that i do a lot of my editing on uh the flip side of that the screen it's all i'm on go hunt right now i'm already yeah. searching for next year you know what i'm doing for application season this year so it's definitely the e-scouting and all the resources that are online definitely make it a lot easier. Um, it has definitely, for me, the last couple of years have been, even though I haven't been successful in putting, you know, an animal on the ground, I have been, I've had really good hunts. I've been on animals. It's one of those things like if I had another a day or two, you know, cause it's, you only can do so much e-scouting. You can get into the right area, but then learning what the animals are going to do, you just kind of have to be there for that. I've gotten myself into the position where I can get to them, but I just haven't quite figured out what they're doing until maybe the last day or the second mm -hmm. to last day and just don't have that opportunity. But like you said, there's great resources. Um, I've done the Treeline Academy, which has been such Mark Levesay, the way he talks about it and like the way he like words it, it just makes it so easy to digest. Um, and it just, it's a great program. Yeah. Yeah. No, he does good work. He's a, uh... He's an he's an ex Ironman guy too. I didn't know which about is him. crazy. Yeah, that's a, that's, no. that's another level yeah, dedication. I, to I'm something. gonna I'm gonna sign him up for one up here and then force him to do a little bit of Canadian uh, Canadian stuff for the Canadian guys that buy Treeline Academy. He says he's he's working on it. So, but I, I mean, imagine putting all that information together. It must be a ton of work. Ton it's of work putting be. it all together. Yeah, and like crazy. I mean, like I said, I've done the program and how easily digestible it is with the chapters, and you just go through it. It just makes it, yeah. I can, you can always go back and you know, hey, I don't remember about this, or like every time I start to pull up 
maps to go e-scout. I'll just kind of go through it and hit some of those refreshers, like, you know, the focus areas and all that that he has in there. Makes it really easy. Yeah, no doubt. So when did you get into hunting? Uh, I'm a late onset hunter. So I didn't pick up a bow or anything until I think I was like 28 and I'm 36 now. So it was not something like growing up in Connecticut where I grew up, it's, I kick myself in the ass all the time because I had the perfect hunting property that my parents owned, 12 acres, slightly flooded in the back. There's always ducks and geese back there. They got whitetails, they got turkeys. My dad sends me pictures of that stuff all the time, but we just never did any hunting. Mm -hmm. My grandfather did a little bit. My dad had killed a pair of deer off the back porch, but it was never a thing where it was, you know, we're going to go do this, or this is like the focus of, you know, I'm going to teach you how to hunt. So grew up, did a little bit of fishing and then moved to North Carolina, kind of got involved with the NASCAR and then NASCAR and hunting those two cultures, you know, they collide. They're really well mingled together. And some of the guys that I was working with and I was carpooling with back and forth to work, you know, they were hunting. So like all summer long, they're talking about moving trail cameras and stands and getting the stuff ready. And they have all these deer picked out, like all these are the ones we're going after this year and sat in the back seat for a while and just kind of listened and kind of took it in. And I was like, you know, I kind of want to get into that. Like, what do I need to do? And they're like, well, you can buy a bow or buy a gun, figure it out. And I'm like, okay. And the way the seasons are, uh, especially here in North Carolina, Archery season runs from early mid September all the way until December 31st. So if I can buy a bow, I can hunt a lot, like as many months all the way up until however many months that is four months where rifle season is much shorter. And then you start to get in the logistics of like, okay, if I buy a gun, I need to go to a gun range. I need to sight it in. I need to buy bullets. Um, it's not something I can just do every day because it's expensive. There's prerequisites to it. If you don't have land and property to go shoot on, the archery equipment was just way easier. Like yeah. I can buy a bow. It's a little bit cheaper. I can shoot it every day. If I want, I have 20 yards in my little fenced in back area in my HOA development that I can shoot at. I'm not going to take a shot really further than 20 yards anyways. Cause I didn't really feel competent in it. So yeah, just the archery thing just made more sense. It was more opportunity and it just seemed a lot cooler. Yeah. Archery does. And trying to explain that though, to a rifle hunter, that's a conversation that never goes off well, but <laughs> uh, I mean, you're killing it now, man. So how long have you been shooting a bow? Yeah. So I've been shooting a bow since whatever that was eight years, seven and a half, eight years ago. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, you're killing like 2017, it 2016. Yeah. Yep. So, so you put a lot of time into it though, eh? You're shooting. I see you shooting like on your Instagram almost every day or every opportunity you got. It's one of those things that uh, if you ever meet another person in NASCAR, there's one thing that we do really, really well. And it's, we obsess about whatever we're doing to be the absolute best at it and do whatever we can to make whatever our equipment is to be the best possible. Mm -hmm. So a lot of guys it's racing and then their side hustle or their side hobby when they're not at the racetrack, they have their own little race car. They're racing locally around here in North Carolina, or they're helping friends out or they're doing the I racing, the virtual racing. So it's like, a lot of guys get into that. For me, once I got into the archery stuff, it just turned into, well, I can build my own arrows. Maybe I can yeah. build arrows and make them more accurate, or I can build them the way I want to. And then that turned into, well, I can cut arrows and then I can do this and I can, I can get a bow press yeah. and I can change strings. And then it just, you know, it just snowballs. And yeah, for sure. I just absolutely love it. Like you can go out there one day and be dead on. You can be campaigns in your backyard and just knock the center out of the target. And the next day you're completely off. 
the equipment hasn't changed. You have, or you have done something to not be the same. So it's that constant struggle and constant pursuit of like, how can I make the perfect shot every single yeah. time? And it just, you get obsessed by it. Oh yeah. It's all repetition, man. Archery. That's what it is. It's just, you know, it's not, there's no real right way to do it. I mean, there is certain fundamentals that you need, but it's just, can you just produce the exact same movement over and over and over? And if you're going to do it the same, almost exactly the same every time, you're going to have the same result, but getting to that and like, even, you know, I've shot hundreds and thousands of arrows, but getting to that point, man, it's like, that's, what's the beauty of archery is like, it's never given, you know, you can, you can get into highs and lows. And like, I just went through it a you know, for the last couple of weeks, I was just like shooting really shitty. So then you got to break, pretty much strip everything down and just start with the fundamentals, go in the garage, start with your form, start with everything, just get, you know, get everything back and then hit the range again. And you're like, okay, there we go. That's better. That feels better. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's definitely a love hate relationship archery, but man, I, myself, I just love it. Yeah. And I, I went one step further, I guess, like archery hunting was a lot of fun. Um, and I found myself shooting my bow all the time. And with the NASCAR schedule, again, being as tough as it is, 3D season is not something I can go shoot. There's a lot of 3D shoots around here in the Southeast. It's, it's a really big thing. So I couldn't do it. Well, what's the next best thing I can do that is like a competition where I can like measure myself against other people? Yeah. Well, it, it was indoor. So I'm getting yeah. ready this whenever this airs, but I'm getting ready to go shoot Lancaster in Pennsylvania um, it's one of the bigger indoor tournaments of the year. Yep. And then the week after going to Vegas, shooting the Vegas line on the pro line with the pros nice. to kind of see where, yeah, it's, do I, I want to know where I'm at. Right. Yeah. You don't get these opportunities that long that often. So to go there, it fits into my schedule. I want to see where I stack up against the pros. I mean, yeah. I, indoor archery is a whole nother animal and, uh, it's been an absolute, rip my hair out at some points and then other points i'm like i i feel like i'm starting to figure this archery thing out yeah it um i, I i'm just a bow hunter i mean i do the occasional 3d tournament i mean i shoot a lot of arrows uh but i know greg Poole said he said there's absolutely not and he shot all over the place he said there's absolutely nothing that compares to walking up in the line in vegas and getting ready to shoot he said it's just it's like something else and yeah it's definitely something that that would be cool to to do so fuck man that's that's awesome good for you yeah I, last year i went and i didn't even shoot the pro line i just shot the the flights you know with everybody else yeah and i mean i was consistently averaging at the house 295 which is good mm -hmm. but it's not like pro level i went to vegas the first round shot like a 280 on the first time and i wasn't even like in the arena with you know like the whole glitz and glam of yeah, it we're yeah. just in this hall shooting and I absolutely like couldn't get my head out of my ass. I was like, okay, I need to be doing this because I can yeah. learn something in this. And I've definitely learned a lot. Yeah. And it puts you in those situations too. And like, if you bring it back to hunting, like if you're in those high stress situations, you're going to always just, you know, your resting heart rates is going to be a little more calmer. So like, it doesn't, I don't really think it matters what you're doing. You know, like if you look at a guy who's been to, who's been to war, you know, um, he's gonna you know there's there's obviously nothing that compares to that you know hunting elk or hunting deer doesn't really even come close to the the emotions and stuff you must be feeling and i feel like if you're doing these these you know this these high 
you know, these things that get your heart rate beating really fast and, you know, get the blood boiling. I feel like when you get put in those high stressful situations, you're just a little cooler. So like, it's good practice, you know, for those hunting situations when you got, I mean, nothing's going to beat a bull elk screaming 15 no. feet away from you, but, uh, you know, a great way to, to practice those high stress situations. Yeah. And I, I thought for me, the, everyone kept telling me how much of the indoor, how much of a mental game it is. Like everyone who's up on the line can shoot their bow just as good as anybody else any day of the week, but it's who can, who has the mental fortitude to be able to handle the pressure and be able to execute every single time. And I for sure thought with my time in racing and being in pressure situations, you know, on pit road where like the stakes are the stakes are way higher than punching holes in paper, mm -hmm. you know, and trying to hit the 10 ring. Like, you know, if a wheel falls off, um, you know, you lose team loses the race car driver might get hurt. You know, there's a lot of things that go into it. Yeah. So it's, I for sure thought like I can handle the mental stress of that. I'll surely I'm just sitting here shooting targets. I can handle that. And you learn stuff. Like it's not the same. The way yeah. I cope with uh, stress and pressure in NASCAR is way different from the way that I need to do it with right. archery. Yeah. So it's learning those things about yourself that has really, you know, helped me grow as an archer, which has definitely helped me during hunting season, you know, be more comfortable with the bow because like, there's nothing, like you said, there's nothing that's going to replace a bull at 15 yards screaming in your face, which I learned a lot this year about that, but it's just putting yourself in those opportunities to be in like stressed out and still be able to like calm down and make those shots where the stakes aren't as high. Huge. Yeah. The ability to perform for sure. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I I'm just thinking about like, imagine those guys in the finals, what's going through their mind. Like imagine being in the finals the very first time against Levi Morgan, what's going on oh. in your head? Like, the pressure and you got all those people looking at you like all this money on the line like man you're just like it's crazy it must just be absolutely crazy it's gotta be yeah so when did you get into when you got into archery you were just you were just compound bow tar, or uh, hunting sit setup when did you switch over to target archery uh last year was the first year i took target archery oh, really? to be something like serious like i want to mm -hmm. do it picked up a target bow last summer um shot it, learned a lot, got upset, got mad, got, you know, obsessed with now, okay, I have to figure this out. And yeah, just spend a little bit of time getting into it. And then that helped my, my bow hunting bow, like it helped me set my hunting bow up and understand everything about that. And my shot a lot better where this year, like when I was able to make shots on animal, like it wasn't, I didn't even have to think about it. You know, I just kind of went through the repetition of it. And like, I knew, and I trusted everything I'd had because what I learned in the target side of it, how to set a bow up, how to do all the things and all the little, you know, the things you can do to make mm -hmm. the bow hold better for you and not have to compensate with form. Uh, that helped me a lot, get my hunting bow set up and be successful in the archery season. Yeah. I bet so, it does for sure. I bet there's a lot that you learn that you don't even think of. Cause like, there's a lot, not like they're the same idea, but they're not like, you know what I mean? Like your, your bow hunting setup is not nearly as elaborate as your, um, target setup. Like it's just, you can't even compare the two. And then you get into like, you know, a lot of guys still, and they're like, they're running six and eight inch stabilizers and you try and like no back bar. And you're like, you try to explain it to them and you're like, just like, 
the principles of it and they're just like no i'm like i guarantee if you go like there's a reason the target guys like the target guys you got to think they're hitting like tax like you're aiming at a dinner plate right like so your equipment i mean like if you can take some of those fundamentals from target archery and transplant them over to bow hunting i mean absolutely like like i said i'm not a target guy i don't have a target bow but my you know my bow is set up you know i got a 15 inch front bar I've got, um, I, I've got a small back bar, six inches, but I put a lot of weight on it. I just don't have a long one because I don't like, um, I don't like how it hits, hits my hand when it, you know, when I break the shot. Yep. Um, but you'd still, you know, like, like small peep sight, you know, everything's, you know, things like that, like, um, putting your sight further away from your bow and like all these fundamentals you bring over to your archery and it, it like, it made me a way better shooter. Like at the beginning, it was a lot harder, right? Because you're shooting, you know, obviously the further your pin is away from your, from your riser, the harder it is. It's going to be the balance, right? To hold it. But after a while you do that. And then like, you just become such a more precise shooter for sure. What's your draw length? 28 and a half. Okay. So I'm a 30 inches. So I'm pretty much maxing most things what I have. Yeah. I found that to be, I've done, that's one thing I learned with the target stuff was I kind of got into torque tuning and I learned out like what worked for me. So like the site for me further away from the riser yeah. is actually worse because right. any little, like for me would be having a 30 inch draw mm-hmm. and then putting my site further out. I'm typically a guy who runs it a few more clicks in, but I guarantee you if we measured our stuff from like the scope housing to our peep, I bet we're pretty similar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's like a ratio in the middle where if you, there's a ton of videos on YouTube about torque tuning and I'm going to do one this year. I just, I didn't understand it enough and I didn't, mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about things that I don't understand, but after doing a lot of it in the last year and a half, figuring it out, like I found the magic number for me, like yeah. where my scope needs to be away from my peep. And I can run that on pretty much any bow and get away with it. And for me, I found that to be like, that was one thing I would have never have found if I wasn't, you know, playing around with the target stuff that yeah. like you were saying, like, a lot of guys want to run like a really small front bar with like two or three ounces on the front of it and nothing on the back. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I found for me, if I run a 15 inch bar with two ounces of weight on the front and an eight inch bar with five or six ounces of weight off the back, like that ratio just holds really well for me. And it holds the bow steady when I make my shot. And it just, you learn so much tinkering with your bow. Like, mm-hmm. oh it's, yeah, it fits everybody differently. Like, what might shoot really good for you might not shoot well for me. It's just having that ability. That's why I love the archery game so much. It's so much like racing. You can have two race car drivers, put them in the exact same race car. One's going to like it. One's going to hate it. Same thing with the bow. So you'd have to figure out what works well for you and like what makes you the best archer you can be. And that's what like we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast. The best part about archery is there's fundamentally some things that you do that are going to make you more successful but overall it's, it's open for interpretation. As long as the pin is in the center and the shot breaks and the arrow hits behind the pin, like it doesn't really matter. Yeah, for sure. And that's it too. And that, these are things that I learned working on my own bow. Like you said, you started tinkering around and that's what I started doing. Like cam timing, right? Like having one, yeah. ca- ta- one cam hit a little sooner than another cam. You know, just so you can have that little extra pull like that for me, having my bottom cam hit a little bit, like a tiny little bit before my top cam, it just made me at full draw. It's just so much smoother holding it like that. 
but well, on the opposite, I, I like my top cam hitting just yeah. a little bit before because of the grip pressure I have. It puts it more in the heel of my hand and yeah, yeah really settles sure. that pin down. Yeah. And these are the things that, you know, and like, even like just playing around with string twists and all this stuff. And like, if you have your own setup and you start tinkering around with it, and then you start learning like all these different, you know, how the bow reacts, when it does, why it does, how the biggest thing is how your bow reacts to you holding it and to your shot process. That's it. Right. Like you said, it doesn't matter. You and I are two completely different shooters, but like you said, like, I, I, I guarantee you that you know the pin to the peeps probably the same distance or yours is probably even further than mine right just because of your draw length um but you know if you were just to go put yeah if you're just to go max out your sight and put it as far as you can off your riser then yeah it's going to be out there too far right and you, you've already found that sweet spot that works for you exactly and you know that's that is the coolest thing about archery is it's so personalized and it's not for everyone which kind of frustrates me with a lot of guys who just get into it because they go on youtube they'll watch a youtube video and they'll say well, I did what this guy said and I can't, I, you know, I can't, I go back to 30 yards and I, I, I can't, I have any consistent grouping. And it's like, well, first of all, you have to find what works for you, not for the, what's working for the guy that you're watching. And second of all, you have to put a little bit more time into it, like really understand what's going on here more than just, you know, watching a five minute video and saying, okay, well, this guy's doing this. Why am I not? I'm doing the same thing. And the hardest thing is too, is like, you don't always know what you're doing. It's good to take videos of yourself and oh, see thanks. what's going on, like what you're what you're actually doing. Because I know, like, it's funny. Like my kid, he he's 11, and he's been shooting. Like all my kids started shooting young, but I'm telling him what he's doing. He's like, Dad, I'm not doing that. I have to take a video of him, show him. Like, look, this is what you're doing. He's like, Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'm doing that. I'm like, well, yeah. Like I'm I'm not making this stuff up. I'm trying to help you be better. But you know, that's why it's good to take a step back. It's good to shoot with other people and ask them. Say, Hey, like um check on my form notice if i'm doing anything that you you know that might catch your eye stuff like that so back to the youtube part of it watching people and doing everything that they're doing <clears throat> i think that youtube in in general for all of this and archery and what it's done for archery and hunting has been exponentially good oh, yeah. um and like you said like you got to pay attention <laughs> to like what other guys are doing because you know maybe that is the setup that might work for you but like someone like if you're going to follow you know Dan state in an elk shape, you know, and you're going to try to do everything he does and the weights he runs on his bow. Well, he's got a 26 and a half inch draw length. Yep. And then I can't run like the same weight ratios as he runs on my bow because my draw length so much longer, you know, like what that weight does for me at a longer draw length versus the shorter draw length and leverage and the way physics works. It's just, it's different. It'll react completely different. So just, watching other people seeing what people are doing and if you look at the common trends like what all these guys are doing you can see that they're all fundamentally doing a lot of the same things but all the stuff they're doing is also very personalized for them so it's just finding out what is that little thing you know if the, maybe the bow's not holding quite right for you you know play around with stabilizer weights angles maybe move your p-pipe up and down a little bit might it's going to mess up your side tape original like initially but mm -hmm. you might find that maybe you're really really high on the face and your releases and then it just doesn't hold great but if you come down you can drop that back shoulder everything holds a little better so it's just it's, again it all goes back to just have fun with it play see what works what doesn't write everything down i learned this very hard the first way when i started doing target stuff if you write everything down and you do one adjustment at a time you can always just undo those adjustments and kind of go yeah. back to where you are if you don't write it down 
and you start changing six, seven things, like you don't know where you're at. And the next thing you know, you have everything stripped off the bow and you have a T square on it. And you're just like starting over, like you're building yeah. a whole new bow because you have no idea where you're at. Yeah. That's a good point. Especially. Yeah. I've done that lots of, especially you're messing around with dial tapes and stuff. And then you start changing, you know, a little thing on your arrow and you're like, okay, well, I want to go, I want to go back to what I had before, but I'm going to what was change it? my arrow back to what I before. Well, what the heck was I doing over here? Yeah. So that's a great yeah. point. Yeah. I'll write the right shit down because I've done it numerous times where I'm like, well, looks like I'm starting from scratch. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've been playing around with cam timing and uh, just going in a twist here, a twist there, two twists here, a half a twist there. And then you don't write it down. But like when you're working, you're just, you're in the press, yeah. you do it, you go shoot 10 arrows. You're like, I don't like the way that holds. You go the other way. Top cam, bottom cam, you do all these things, and then you come back two days later and you're like, Man, I really like how it was two adjustments before that. Like, you remember that, but you don't remember what the adjustments are. And next thing you know, you got tape measures, you're measuring axle and brace height, and you're trying to get everything back to square, like where you started, but it might not actually be where you started. So just write everything down. Like, that's yeah. the, the number one tip I can give everybody is just write it down. Yeah. That's I've, I've done that when I first started messing around with like shimming cam or shimming cams and stuff for, 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 um, tuning a bow and then just, you know, cam lean and stuff like just messing with the cable twists and stuff. And like, Oh man, I, I, I learned. So like there got to the point where I was like, man, I, I, I don't even know where these strings were, where they started. Like I got to get new strings yeah. now. I don't even, I fuck these strings up so much. Yeah. But it, it's, it's fun though. That's what makes it fun. Right. That's, it's all part of the process. And I think that's, again, the whole racing thing for me, just tinkering and working on it. And like in racing, like there's always the fastest race car, but that might not be the best setup. It might just right. be what works for that guy. So, you know, I always thought maybe because I was shimming my cams all the way over to the left of the bow, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me and I'm compensating. Mm -hmm. And I've just learned over the years, like after talking to more people, they're like, oh yeah, the first thing I did with the new bow is I take everything apart, shim the cam all the way right or left or whichever way they always go. And then they think they go from there. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. So it's not something I'm doing wrong and I'm compensating. This is just, I put my right shoe on first. You put your left shoe on first, just yeah. how we do our things. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, it's cool, man. That's awesome. All the best of luck to you. I'll be looking out for that. It's going to be fun. I'm going to need it. So um, how was your hunting season? Let's talk a little bit about hunting. Hunting season was good. Um, I shot a, the largest buck I've ever shot in North Carolina. Um, North Carolina is not really largest, known for. So, so sorry, the largest. No, 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 not largest buck in North Carolina. Oh, okay. Largest buck. The largest buck there. I've ever shot in okay. North Carolina. Okay. Um, North Carolina, not really known for large, you know, deer. Uh, there are some big ones, but. Where I'm hunting, it's a little bit more of kind of an urban environment. We have some housing developments. You get these last probably 10 or 15 years, the area I'm living at um, has just been getting developed and developed and developed. So all the big farmlands and um, public lands have kind of gone away um, and they become nature preserves or housing developments. So if you can find a little piece of hunting land, it's good. Um, and because of that, we've kind of become a little overpopulated with deer, which doesn't sound like a bad thing, but, uh, the quality of bucks we've seen in the last 10 years has definitely decreased talking to, you know, other people and like mm -hmm. just seeing them myself. So I shot a nice one. I have no idea what it scores. I've never put a tape measure on it. Um, if it walks in front of me in the stand and I get excited, then I'm probably going to shoot that deer, especially if I got that tag in my pocket. So yeah. it's, yeah, I'm super happy for that. Uh, went elk hunting again, Montana, 
got to 35 yards and just was standing next to the wrong tree. If I was standing next to the tree behind me, mm-hmm. perfect shot. Uh, camera guy who was with me had a perfect shot on this oh. bull elk for like five minutes. And he's whispering to me to shoot him, to shoot him. Like I can't because yeah. he's got all the trash and frontal yeah, and he's looking at me. There, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that was awesome. Again, that was another thing. Found a spot on the map, just using some e-scouting. And I was, we were in elk every single day. Went on multiple stocks, just some of them. We got to where we were too close to the private public line where ethically I couldn't really make a shot um, knowing the private ranch that we were next to and them not being super generous about people going and retrieving animals they've shot on public. You know, we were having to play it a little bit. We had to have a pretty bigger buffer zone off of that line. Mm -hmm. So some of those, we got in some good stocks. We've seen some good bowls, but we were just not, not in a position where we felt comfortable or I felt comfortable to pull the trigger on it. So, um, but again, that was just one of those every day bugling bulls, just being around out, just enjoying it. So that was fun. Yeah. If I could hunt, there's a couple of places I'd love to hunt elk and Montana is definitely one of them. I mean, I've never been there, but I just, you know, all the people I talk to and stuff I see, it just seems like, you know, well, I mean, you guys have a really good elk population down there. We hunt in British Columbia, you know, it's like four times the size of Montana with a quarter of the elk population. So a lot harder to uh to get those you know normally if you see a legal bull that's the bull you if you're not if you don't kill that one this year you're not killing one so usually that's how it is um but uh no that's cool man um so you had a camera guy with you what have how long you've been running a camera guy i started running one like i I started working with uh a guy that's that's developing a tv show so him and i went on a few hunts i have a guy another guy that he wants to get into hunting he works a camera so uh, we're going to start filming all some of these hunts, but, um, it's going to be, you know, I've, I've had camera guys in the past and it's like, like, you know, friends come out with me and stuff like that. And I, you know, this one time we're stalking in on a bear and it's like, I stop and then he bumps into the back of me. I'm like, Hey man, like fuck little breathing room here. Like, yeah, pay attention. Camera? Yeah. Where are you putting that camera anyway? Yeah. Uh, so no, this was, uh, that hunt was the first time I had hired a camera guy to come with me. Um, it's just been, so the YouTube thing for me has always kind of been, I was doing a lot of the, you know, the tech tuning stuff and figuring out, and I had friends like, Hey, you know, like, how do you do this? Or how do you do that? Can you teach me how to do this? And then, uh, it just, when COVID happened and everything kind of got locked down, my wife was like, why don't you just start making your own videos? And I'm like, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Um, ultimately what I would want to do is like racing's only, I'm only going to be fortunate enough to do it for so long, just like any athletic endeavor. So I got to do something post racing and for me to be able to go hunting full time, do something like this, um, after racing would be another dream come true. Right. Cause yeah. the last thing I want to do is go sit somewhere when I've traveled and done all these cool things. So anyway, I can like fuel that hunting passion and hopefully maybe turn it into something down the road who knows but so i started doing the youtube stuff and it was really for the longest time it was me holding the camera going on the hunt trying to be the camera guy the guide the hunter just trying to do it all right yeah yeah. felt like the camera got in the way a couple times um or not shooting a bull in colorado because it was 
it was a legal bull. It was four points on one side, three on the other. So technically it would have been legal in that unit, but it wouldn't have made for like a great video, I thought. Um, and there was a five by five walking away. So I was like, I'll go after that one. Never got on him, long story short. And uh, yeah, so I was fortunate enough this year I competed in, I know you had Jonathan McCormick on just recently. Yeah. I just listened to that podcast and uh, first form and first form outdoors. They had a, the November knockdown challenge last year. I qualified for it. I went and competed and I won. So I am the first forum pro staff for the outdoors nice. side of it. Yeah. And, uh, that I won a nice $10,000 payday plus the first forum pro staff position. And when I took that money, I said, okay, I can hire a camera guy now to go with me <laughs> on a hunt because that's like, I want to be able to hunt, but I don't have to want to have to worry oh. about the camera, carry the gear, do all the things. I'm like, I just want to go hunt and someone else do all that yeah, yeah. camera work. So, um, I hired a guy, uh, all for one creative, uh, Damon Wolf. He was really good and he did a great job and do this kid, 19 years old. I mean, he is hustling. This is what he wants to do. And he was never once like, that was my biggest fear is I take a camera guy out in the field and he's, you know, he's tired. He doesn't have the right things. He just doesn't want to do this. He's slowing me down. And dude, if I was like, yeah, that bull's like two miles away. He's like, all right, let's go. Like, okay. I'm like, Hey, the quickest way to get there is going to be go up straight up this face, like not zigzag, not go around. Like, let's just go straight up. He's like, all right, cool. Like he was just on the spot every single time. Um, constantly reminding me that was always one of the things that I had a problem with in the field was like taking updates, you know, getting B-roll shots, doing Mm -hmm. the stuff. So when I'm editing, I'm like, I can put a nice video together. Yeah. He was getting all that. I didn't have to worry about it. He was constantly reminding me, Hey, let's do this. Hey, tell me what's going on here. And, uh, great kid. And he's going to have, he's going to be a name that's going to come up a lot in the hunting industry in the next few years. Cause he's just really good, smart, uh, made a great video. So yeah, that was the first time I had a camera guy. Um, and if I'm fortunate enough to do it again next year and the funds are there, I would love to do it again because it just made it where I could go hunting a little bit easier. Um, I've had some people come like film tack for me before, but it's kind of been like, Hey, you want to come film tack? Like I'll pay for you to shoot. Like, or my wife's held the camera a bunch, uh, especially at like the total archery challenges and (laughs) some of the stuff around the house. Like she's supportive of it. And I can't thank her enough for that because she's the one who kind of started all of this. Yeah, yeah. So for her to be able to hold that camera. That doesn't go over very well. I've had, I've tried that before. That doesn't go over well. Well, I mean, it's, we've double tapped the record button a couple of times <laughs> and we've not gotten some stuff, but it's at the end of the day, it's one of those. Oh, that, like, okay. Yeah. I was filming, I've already told this story in the podcast, but I was filming um, a whitetail hunt and had to, I was sitting in a, a blind, had a camera set up perfectly. And in BC, you're allowed to bait. So it was on a, over a bait pile. And it was just like the perfect setup, everything ready to roll. Buck comes in that I've never seen before. Really nice big buck comes in. I go over to the camera. I hit the button. Nothing happens. I hit it again. Nothing happens. Or it just came on, but the little red light didn't flick on. And then I hit it again and it has a delayed on and off. Mm-hmm. And so when I hit it again, the last time I hit it, I noticed the red the little red button flashing. So I thought it was rolling and I didn't look at it again. And I went to grab my bow you know waited drew back killed the thing perfect shot i even put lighted knocks on so they could see it in the camera 
and like I don't even shoot light at Knox, and I'm like, oh yeah, right on the you know went down, it's money, and I look over and the camera's not on, and I was like, oh my god, I was so so yeah. deflated. I've done but, that. I mean, I've done that doe hunting, like hasn't been a big buck, but you know, like you just want to learn, like get it for me, anyone who wants to record, like anything you can go record, record it, whether you're yeah, going to use the footage yeah. or not. Uh, I've learned that lesson where I've double tapped it or like thought the camera was on hit record. And the camera I have, I don't have a lens that turned or a screen that turns around so I can see it like in selfie mode. Yeah. Turned it on, thought it was on hit record. Camera was never even on to begin with. I was like, Awesome. I talked to this thing for five minutes after the shot and just <laughs> nothing. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, I'm glad it's, I'm not the only one. But uh, I feel like when you're archery elk hunting, like it, it would be to capture, like to capture it properly. You you couldn't self film on them like that. There's no way. Yeah, it's tough. Um, I think and like for me, at least when I've done it, like if anyone goes back and watch my Colorado video or my Montana video, I'll put links up, ago, I'll put links okay. up in the, in the show notes. Um, they are just like, you can see like the, the majority of the footage starts in like day one, day two, and then day three, it's like, I need to hunt a little harder day four. It's like, okay, like I'm not pulling the camera out every hour to film a tree or, you know, film this thing. Cause it's like, I got to go the next mm -hmm. ridge over and I'll have time for that. Like, you can see kind of the switch and I think it happens to a lot of people in their videos. You can see the switch where it's like you get a lot of really good stuff in the beginning. And then it, towards the end, you just, you start focusing on the hunting part of it yeah, and not the content creating part of it. And that's why, that's why I wanted to get a camera guy this year, especially when I won that $10,000 from first form to be able to afford to do that, like to give it a shot to be like, Hey, is this going to, is this going to help me hunt, make, make, put me in better positions hunting where I'm not so worried about it. And it absolutely did. Um, I just wasn't able to connect. Some of it was, you know, making mistakes, not being a super successful elk hunter, um, not putting myself in like really advantageous positions to succeed. Uh, maybe not closing the gap as fast as I should have, or going one tree too far, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So it's, I was able to learn a lot more on this trip instead of worrying about getting content yeah. as much. And, uh, it was good. It was refreshing and pretty excited to go do it again. Um, probably going to continue to hire cameramen as long as the budget allows it. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, well, that's cool, man. Yeah. I'll put all those links up. I, I did watch uh, a couple of your films and I thought they're, they were selfing. I thought they're, they're really well done. But again, I mean, when you have an actual camera guy there and he knows his camera inside yeah. and out, man, like they, you just can't compare, you know, cause if you're trying to sit there and focus on, what an elk's doing, when it's doing, what calls are it's doing, you calling back. If you're messing, you know, if you're playing with a camera, worried about focus and lighting and all this stuff, you just, it's like, man, it's just not impossible, but so hard, so hard. It's to do. so hard. Yeah. Like, do I set up the tripod? Do I just go with the GoPro? Like you're carrying yeah. all this extra stuff around. You're like, is this going to be, a, do I have to get the shot? Do I not have to get the shot? You know? And that was one thing I told Damon when he came with me, I was like, Hey man, look, I don't care if you get the shot on camera or you get me making a shot, like just get something like it doesn't have to be perfect. And I'm yeah. not waiting for you to be like, all right, I'm ready. Like yeah, yeah. if it's not in focus, it's not in focus and I'm not going to be upset about it, but we're going to do the best we can. Cause the most important thing for me on any of those trips is most important thing for me is to get something on the ground and be successful mm -hmm. in the hunting side of it. Um, and then 
the camera stuff is just like secondary to that, to like document, to capture, to tell a story of like what happened on this trip. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, for sure, man. Yeah. I feel, yeah. With archery. Yeah. I mean, archery elk, I mean, there is archery hunts like whitetail hunting. If you're hiding and blind in the stand, definitely easier rifle hunting. Obviously, you know, I feel like that's the one where you can have, you know, talk to the camera guy like hey are you ready you ready and it, like yeah there are some really good camera guys out there that are just always in you know seem to put themselves in the right spot at the right time but they've spent a lot of time they're probably good elk you know you could give them a rifle or a bow and they'd be good elk hunters themselves they spent a lot of time in the woods um but i mean you see a lot of these you know these high budget films a lot of them have like two or three camera guys going so oh, yeah it's a you know they got a lot more angles a lot more camera guys i mean obviously it's not easier the more people you hunt with the harder it gets but still i mean when you have you know a couple extra hands on deck it, it definitely makes the production uh go a little easier and, and increase the quality i inquired with uh some people that do some filming for some of those you know high dollar budget shows or um the other people on youtube and for what some of these films cost like give those if you're watching the video and you like it give it a like give them a subscribe because like you're never going to be it. able to help pay for that. But if you can support, you know, me or anyone else that you're watching yourself, like if you're watching this video and like you want to support, yeah, you, you if you want to send me five, six, ten thousand $10,000 for a camera guy to go on all my hunts, that'd be great, you know? But yeah, if you can do the little things like subscribe and like, especially yeah. if you're watching it, like those things go so far and knowing the backside of it, how much editing and how much all that goes into oh, yeah. it, for a 20 minute video and how much that costs somebody it just yeah it's nothing's worse than like you put this whole thing out there and people are like yeah it kind of sucks like, oh, yeah thanks. that's the one thing playing around with video that i i definitely intimidated by is the time to do the editing and just like learning it all like with the podcast you know it was an evolution i started podcasting over three years ago and it took a lot to get to the point where it can be clean and neat and the audio was good and like now i'm do the put the videos out there and you know i edit the videos so you know your there'll be a link up to your hunt in the video and stuff like that but just adding that in you know it's a lot but like to edit i know guys in you know that edit um they for for television and it's like man it's like so much time in there and i'm like man like and they just get so like down to all the simple like fine details and i'm like man is that really worth it but i guess you know in the long run if you're produce if you can produce really high good content then I, I i suppose it is i don't know yeah 20 minute video like for something i'm doing like not including filming time just sitting down editing um if i know all of the footage like i took it all mm -hmm. i don't have to go back and watch any of it and figure out like what somebody else took for me uh, if i know all the footage i can kind of piece it together and timeline it in my head before i start editing and a 20 minute video could take easily you know, three to six hours over two or three days just to put that out there, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, I, I enjoy doing it though, right? It's, yeah. it's creating something, it's doing something. I like learning all the time, regardless of what it is. So like doing the editing stuff and just kind of like figuring out how to edit and like get the cool shots and do something mm -hmm. that is like, it's different or figure out how somebody else did that and then be able to replicate it and put it in my video. Like, that's really cool. So like, I enjoy it. It's not something I'm like, I dread doing, but, um, 
it'd be definitely nice if, you know, I get to the point where I can just send that off to somebody yeah, else where you didn't have to do it for sure. Yeah. yeah that would be nice, but uh, yeah, cool, man. Um, fitness. Now I always see a grind and I always see working out. Let's talk a little bit about fitness. So do you train year round, even when you're like full tilt with NASCAR? Is it kind of like something that's really important to you is keeping up with your fitness? Yeah. So, uh, NASCAR season's 40 weeks long. If I didn't work out during the racing season, like I would it'd be completely out of shape by the time the season was over. Um, uh, I think if you can maintain a general level of, you know, physical preparedness, mm-hmm. your GPP, uh, all year long, I think that is exponentially more valuable than, you know, someone who's going to work out hard for three, four months and then kind of like give up on it because what they're doing isn't sustainable. Um, so for me, I like to stay fit. Like I said, I'm 36 years old. I'm not getting any younger being in athletics and changing tires. Anyone who plays or has done sport, you know, for a career, like father time is undefeated. So anything you can do to kind of delay that as long as possible is what I'm out for. So I looked at it from a tire changing perspective. I can either be like mentally stronger and faster than you or I can be physically stronger and faster than you. So if I can do both of those, like it's a win-win scenario. So for me, I'm trying to be, you know, one of the best, strongest, fittest tire changers on pit road because, and the more athletic you can be, the better off you're going to be. And then as a secondary to that, it helps with the hunting and everything else that I'm doing where like a lot of guys and there's girls, there's nothing wrong with it, but like you plan this hunt in September and you start training for it in, you know, June, August, wherever, like a couple months before. And that's great. Cause it gives you a goal for something, but I just try to maintain a level of fitness throughout the year. Mm-hmm. So when I go on these hunts, yeah, I might do a little bit more, like I'll put the backpack on and put 50 pounds in it, hit the treadmill once or twice a week, just to kind of like understand what that's going to feel like on my hips. But there's mm-hmm. not a lot of like, I guess, hunting related training that I'm doing. It's just mm-hmm. generally stay fit all year. So that yeah. way, you know, you kick ass on pit road and be healthy. Yeah, for sure. I don't like, I don't do any specific hunting training. I don't rock. I don't do anything. I do things that I like to do. And that allows me to do it year round. Like if I, I tell people, if you enjoy doing it, you're going to keep doing it. If you absolutely hate doing it, you're not going to do it. Right. Like mm-hmm. you, you so find something that you like to do. If you like to run, run. If you like to swim, swim. If you like to rock, rock. If you like lifting weights and lift weights, incorporate a little bit of cardio in there, but just find something you like to do and do it consistently and you're going to be good to go. There's some Did things you... like I figured out the same thing where you were saying, like over the years, like that there's things that I can and can't do that are advantageous to like NASCAR and pit stops, you know, like what I've done over the last 14 years to my knees, running, jumping and landing on my knees every single weekend, like hasn't done well for the knee joints. So running is great. Like there's a lot of people who like to go out and run. I can't run because I get inflamed, I get swelling, and then when I get swelling, I can't bend down look right the right way, I can't get up the right way. So like I've learned, I've adjusted my training over those 14 years to try to be and maintain as strong and as fit and as like enduring as I can be without you know wrecking your body. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. And there's a lot of ways to get the same results. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. There's so many ways of training. You can do CrossFit, right? Like I I just lift you know, I just use standard weightlifting. I'll do chest and back one day, shoulders and calves and like arms. And then I do each body part twice a week and I incorporate running and 
bike in there. But when I do my weightlifting, I do like supersets, right? Keep my heart rate up and just get a good sweat going. They're not super long. They're really quick and intense. And then that's it. It's done for the day, right? And then it just I just keep doing it consistently over time and time. And then you never have to worry. Like when I go into a hunting season, I, I never, I don't like, I don't sit there and be like, oh, I got a month to go hunting. I got to get in shape. It's like, no, yeah. you just, you just, you just stay fit. Like you said, you stay fit, you stay consistent and it allows you to do these things that you love to do. You don't have to worry about that. Now I can focus on, I could focus on where I'm going to hunt. You know, I can focus on, you know, what the weather's going to do or, you know, all this other stuff that you, you need to worry about too. And you're not really worried about your fitness. You're just doing the same things that you've done for, you just keep doing them. It just helps. It, I find like, especially with bow hunting. I mean, if you're in shape and you're bow hunting, it's going to allow you to crest that ridge and not be out of gas so you can come to full draw if you need to. You know, stuff like oh, yeah. that. For sure. I think with um, a lot of what we do in NASCAR, like we have very sport-specific training. Like there's a lot of agility stuff that we do. Um, I do a little bit more CrossFit than I think the average bear in NASCAR, uh, the population. But um, I also like doing a lot of like the Olympic lifting is very fast, powerful, explosive movements, mm -hmm. because that's a lot of what we're doing. Like we do four tires, 16 gallons worth of gas. We're doing it in nine seconds or less. So what is every, one tire, like what is one tire weigh for those? 55 pounds. Oh, yeah. Not light. So we, we got one tire, one lug nut, that gun alone weighs like 11 pounds. You're holding it in one hand, pull yeah. the lug nut and the gun off or the wheel off at the same time. And I'm taking that 55 pound tire and I'm throwing it back to the wall. Um, but all those movements are happening, you know, very fast. So we do a lot of speed and agility work. And then we also do a lot of power and explosive movements to be able to like do those things really fast because just like an archery, like, you know, an inch could mean everything, you know, clipping the back of the lung or, you know, being too high or clipping the liver where for us it's tens of seconds, you know, every like two tenths of a second is an eternity in NASCAR in a pit stop realm. So it's like, how can we spend our time? finding those little tiny details. And a lot of that comes in the weight room, just like you're saying with like having that energy to be able to crest over that Ridge when you get there and not be like completely gassed out. It's like, what, are, what can we do to be as efficient as possible on pit road? But there again, I'm trying to be as efficient as possible on the mountain and to go get to your point. Like if you're waiting for a month before the season to get fit, like the month before the season, that's when I'm like really pouring into the maps, getting really mm -hmm. detailed. So like when I get there, I may have never put boots on the ground there before, but like I can see like, oh, I've seen that ridge or I've seen this. I know what the topography looks like if I go over here because I've looked at it so much. Instead of me spending three hours in the gym a day trying to get in shape for this hunt, I can spend two hours looking at the maps and be exponentially further ahead than someone who's just trying to like get fitter for it. But there's nothing wrong with, you know, getting fit for it because that's going to be the thing that's going to hold you back, not I didn't do enough e-scouting. That's not going to hold you back. It's no. going to be, I can't make it up there. You know, that's, what's going to hold you back. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, absolutely. It's never too late to start thinking about, um, physical conditioning and just, mm -hmm. I mean, if you can do it longer, if you can do it year round, if you can do it consistently, the thing I always say, Hey, if you, if you're in shape, you're going to be healthy and you're eating healthy, you're going to live longer. You're going to hunt longer. Right. So you're going to get more opportunity. But one thing I found a lot of, with a lot of people is, two, three weeks before a hunt and then they try to get in shape and they do too much and they end up injuring themselves. And, yeah. you know, I'm guilty of doing, you know, training for a race and then doing way too much and injuring myself and then being like, Oh, like just, you know, 
it's just, it's so frustrating, but you know, that's one of those things that you really have to pay attention to. But if, yeah, if you can just stay, you know, you don't have to be in top physical shape either. Right. You don't, you know, train three days a week, just stay, you know, conditioned. And then when it comes time to it, you just push a little harder and you put yourself with a plateau. And it's like you said, you don't have to spend as much time worrying about it. And not only that, you don't have to spend as much time recovering. Cause when you, if you, if you don't do anything all year and you just get into the gym, for the first two weeks, you're going to be sore as hell. Oh, so you're, it's wrecked. It's terrible. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be horrible, right? And so if you're going into a hunt sore already, man, it's going to be a long seven, 10 day trip. You're just mentally, you're just putting yourself behind mentally. And like, that's the one thing I've learned, you know, doing the backpack stuff, especially being solo, you know, and being out there like physically, maybe not that demanding. Mentally, it's just yeah. like, God, do I really want to do it? And then if you go into that sore, like my feet hurt a little bit, like that's just going to add to like your mental fatigue. Like my feet hurt. I can't really go over there because my feet are bothering me. But if you go into it and you're fresh and you know, you're strong and you've been working out all year and you've been doing something like right now, early January, early January, if you can just, or mid January, if you can just spend, you know, three days a week, just doing something, it's going to help you exponentially come August, September, October, November, whenever your hunt is. So yeah, just spend a little bit of time now, put money in the bank. So that way when hunting season shows up, you can withdraw it and you're ready to go. Yeah. I like that. I love, I love analogies like that, man. They're awesome. Okay, buddy. Uh, I want to thank you for hopping on the show. It's been, uh, it's been great to catch up. I know I I reached out a few times and you're, you're going full bore. So it was nice to finally get a chance to get Yeah, man, no doubt. I'm pr- I appreciate you for having me on. Um, it's been great to listen to the podcast. So, yeah, cool. To be I'll put it. up uh, links to all your stuff, but maybe just for the guys listening, uh, you know, in the car or wherever, just uh, hit them up so they know where to find you and follow you. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram. It's at Jeff Cordero underscore, um, and then I'm on YouTube. Uh, it's just Jeff Cordero. If you search that, it should pop right up. So. Yeah. Beauty. Okay, buddy. All the best of luck um, with the tournament and this year coming up in the hunts and with the NASCAR, I'll be following number 24, you said? Yes, sir. Awesome. Okay, buddy. Thanks again. All right. Thanks for having me on.